Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. In this episode, we listen to the music from Sabrina, made in 1995. Now, here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Welcome back, everyone. I'm so glad to have you here. Our last episode featured John Williams's brilliant work for Schindler's List. When I made the argument that the score marked the end of his so-called golden age of music that spanned about two decades. Now, that doesn't mean Williams would not write wonderful music after 1993, but the amount of films he worked on dropped dramatically, with the quality of music sometimes only taking a slight dip. After taking a full year off from working on any film scores, John Williams got back to work in 1995 with Sabrina, a remake of the 1954 film that starred Humphrey Bogart, Audrey Hepburn, and William Holden. Depending on how you define romantic comedy, Sabrina marked Williams' first foray into writing romantic comedy music since the 1960s. Unless you count The Witches of Eastwick and or Heartbeeps as romantic comedies, and in some ways I don't. So the challenge for Williams was to reach back into his early years of film scoring to find the right tone for this remake. Because it is one of the few romantic comedy scores for Williams in the modern era, I have been looking forward to exploring this music. And joining me to do so is John Maria Caschetto, back for his third stint as co-host. It's great to have you back on the show, John Maria. Hi, Jeff. It's so great to be back for the third time. Uh, really, thank you for allowing me uh, to co-host the show. Uh, it's great to be back, and it's great to be back uh, to talk about this particular score, uh, which is uh, one of the maybe uh, forgotten gems in John Williams's production. Like you, I consider 1993 a watershed year for Williams, and although I do not like to divide his natural progress and evolution as an artist into periods, I find it handy, you know, to mark 1993 as the end of a distinct period. Um, Williams received his last, still to date, Oscar in 1994 for his score to Schindler's List. And also in 1993, he stopped uh, as a regular conductor for the Boston Pops. I will go as far as to call it the end of the peak period of John Williams, uh, because most of the work that uh, he still remembered today for was written before 1993, maybe with the exception of Harry Potter. Uh, but his greatest hits are also for movies or for a series of movies that uh, were done before. And also the number, as you said, of movies that he worked on and the number of new collaborations that started after 1993 uh, dropped uh, a bit. And taking that year off from film scores increased for me the level of expectations for a new Williams score in 1995. But instead of coming back with a bang, you know, he picked up two smaller, very different projects. It was uh, Nixon and Sabrina. Yes, it's no surprise to me that Williams would write the music for Nixon, since he had already worked twice with Oliver Stone. But I find it interesting that he was picked to write the music for Sabrina. Now, this was his second film with Sidney Pollack, going back to Presumed Innocent, that had Pollack working on that film as producer. Now, Pollock was directing the remake of Sabrina, and when it came time to pick a composer, I do wonder if he thought about bringing back one of his already established collaborators. 
Remember that The Way We Were in 1973 bought a lot of success for Marvin Hamlish. But I think Hamlish might have been too exhausted from touring with Barbara Streisand in 1993 and 1994 and just needed a little break. Dave Grusin, however, had worked on eight films with Sidney Pollack dating back to 1974, and he seemed like the logical first choice for this film given the history. Grusin's musical style would have fit perfectly for Sabrina, so I feel that there might have been some scheduling conflict that kept him out of it. Or maybe Williams was always Pollock's first choice. But whether John Williams was the first, second, or third choice for composer, it allowed him to reach back not only into his romantic comedy past, but also his love of jazz writing. There is a jazzy flavor to the score, and it also comes out in the two songs he wrote with the famous lyricists Alan and Marilyn Bergman. Well, you know, Jeff, at the time, in 1995, I was open to new things, and although I wouldn't have minded you know, a new epic score full of grandeur, especially since we, already, uh, we were already anticipating the next Star Wars trilogy because it was announced around the same period, but I was eager to listen to whatever Mr. Williams would do, and his score to Sabrina was a really welcome surprise. Uh, William possibly thought the movie was a, had a good chance to be a success. You know, uh, Harrison Ford was in it, Sidney Pollack was taking care of the directorial duties, and the recent success of Pretty Woman, which in my eyes is a kind of a remake of My Fair Lady with Audrey Hepburn. It proved that that movie, Pretty Woman, proved that you could maybe uh, rethink older romantic comedies with a modern edge. Uh, but unfortunately, the movie didn't turn out to be uh, that good. At least it's not as good as Pretty Woman. Now, it is not as bad as I remember. I remember I called it a stinker <laughs> at the end of the last episode we did it together. The movie is not that bad, but it's very far from memorable or charming. And it really pales in comparison to the classic that uh, inspires it. So to me, there lies the problem. They try to remake a very, very fun movie. Now... Not everything is bad in the movie. I think that Julia Ormond is a fine actress. Uh, she delivers a fine performance, but really what puts her at a disadvantage is the fact that she has to compare herself to Audrey Hepburn, you know, one of the most beloved and iconic Hollywood actresses. I liked Greg Kinnear in the movie a lot, and I think he will prove his acting chops uh, later on with uh, as good as it gets uh, from, with director J.L. Brooks. Uh, I'm not sure actually if Harrison Ford was uh, the right choice for the male lead because I do not know if he can sell, you know, the detached businessman kind of kind kind of type. Because Harrison Ford to me is too suave, you know, it, it's a little bit too convincing as a ladies' man to be believed as a workaholic. You know, in the older version, the casting of uh, Humphrey Bogart was really inspired because he usually played the kind of man who could be the romantic lead, yes but who would do things his way. You know, he didn't have to charm somebody. He always played the type of man who didn't care what other people thought of what the women thought. Uh, and so he was convincing as a kind of a really uh, driven businessman. Harrison Ford, I don't know if he works with the same kind of attitude. And also the class and sophistication of the Williams's music to me is really what brings up the movie and uh, really allows it to work at some level. To a degree, I think that John Williams is trying to score the better movie uh, 
the better version of this movie. Maybe it's almost trying to rewrite the score to the 1954 classic. Yeah, the 1954 classic had a fine score. It Obviously, nobody really talks about it very much, so you may be right. I think maybe he wanted to maybe put his own stamp on it, and uh, I think he did a great job. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Williams co-wrote two songs for the film. One is called Moonlight, and the other, How Can I Remember? Pollock wanted both songs to be performed at a lavish party at the beginning of the film and actually have people actually performing it. So Williams and the Bergmans had to write them before filming started, which was around spring 1995. Both songs are performed in the film by lounge singer Michael Dees, and they definitely sound like they belong in a jazz lounge. Now here's a bit of How Can I Remember. How can I remember things that never happened? Arms that never held me, lips I never kissed. How can I remember? Why do I keep seeing someone's face before me? Eyes that say they know me, shining through the mist. Eyes that I remember I don't know why or when or where I feel suspended in midair Somewhere between a dream and a memory Where then and now meet some And Michael Dees' version of Moonlight was never released commercially, and it can be heard for just a little more than a minute in bits and pieces at the party that opens the film, and it's sung really underneath Julia Ormond's narration, so you can't really get an appreciation for it. Now, perhaps it was never available to be heard outside the film because the version that would be the official release was sung by the superstar Sting. Well, yes, Jeff, indeed. Uh, one of the things that really excited me about the score in the beginning was the involvement of Sting. Uh, because uh, back in the day, and maybe still today, is one of my favorite pop artists. And I think that his rendition is really, really good. Now, I don't know why Sting was chosen to perform the song. And I think his version is heard um, over the end credits as well as in the CD release. And maybe perhaps because we A&M... Uh, the record label that uh, issued the soundtrack release uh, was also the same label that uh, worked with Sting, at least at the time. So that could be one of the reasons they wanted Sting, maybe just because he's a very good artist. Now, in the song as uh, sung by Sting presents his usual lineup with Dominic Miller on guitar and uh, Vinnie Colaiuta on the drums. What's interesting is that the string accompaniment, uh, however, that you hear beneath the song, uh, was arranged and conducted by Don Davis, who is a great composer himself. Takes your breath away 
The end of the song, Stings shows off also a little bit with his uh, classic signature held long note. In the love light, when our eyes have grown accustomed to the daylight, we'll see what waits for us to share for all the things we've dreamed of. In Now, I always imagine Sting sitting in some smoky jazz lounge singing that song with a few musicians on stage with him. It just really works that way as a song to perform not only at the Long Island party in the movie, but as the icing on the film at the end credits. Now, the melody of the song is actually very, very similar to uh, Make Me Rainbows, a previous song by Williams and the Bergmans for Fitzwilly, almost 30 years earlier. And one could think essentially that this is a reworking of the same song. Beautiful music wherever I go. 
But the treatment given, however, is very, very different uh, because uh, Moonlight in the movie and in, on the CD is played like a bossa nova. It's more quiet. Now, if you allow me a little bit of detour, because I would like to analyze this song, Jeff, uh, I would recommend the listeners of the podcast to look online for a British TV program. I think it should be available if you look for it, called 20th Century Greats. Now, it's a music show, uh, it's four episodes, and they are hosted by composer Howard Goodall, which is the regular composer for Rowan Atkinson. For instance, uh, now the series uh, featured an in-depth look to the work of uh, the Beatles, uh, Bernard Herrmann, Leonard Bernstein, and Cole Porter. Now I wasn't very familiar with Cole Porter except for some of his most famous songs, and this program was really an uh, eye-opener um, because uh, one of the things I discovered, for instance, that uh, Cole Porter was a of course, an incredible songwriter, but was also uh, a composer that was really admired by other composers. And because uh, one of the things that he did was to borrow techniques and things from the classical music toolbox and apply it to songwriting. And one of the things that he used in his songs frequently was uh, sequencing. Now, uh, what is this sequencing? Um, Sequencing is simply put the idea of starting with a nugget of few notes, like three or four notes, and then repeating them, moving them across the scale, applying minor variations, you know, add a note, take out a note, uh, flatten a note. And so you put all these uh, sequence, these little bits in sequence, and then you have a new melody. Now, a very well-known example, for instance, of sequencing is the beginning of Beethoven's uh, Fifth Symphony, you know, the, the famous uh, fate knocking on the door, da-da-da-da, and that da-da-da-da in the Fifth Symphony, you know, it repeated over and over for the first three minutes of the symphony in different variation, you know, moving it across. I believe also that there is some sequencing here in Moonlight, and maybe it's something that John Williams wanted to do, uh, you know, in the uh, in the manner of Cole Porter, which I know is a songwriter and musician he also admires very much. And you know, if you take uh, the little bit uh, uh, four notes at the beginning, essentially he started with that, and then he adds a note. And you start to variate uh, the notes, and essentially you create this long line melody which forms the song. And it's interesting because if you think songwriting for the pop world, uh, it follows a different structure. Usually you have a verse, chorus, verse, and then a bridge, and it's different. And I think it's very interesting to try to hear how John Williams may have composed this song. 
add one more thing. You know, this piece uh, does not work only as a song, however, but also as an instrumental piece. Uh, it's one of the four musical themes in the movie. It recur in different guises throughout the movie. And there is also a wonderful instrumental rendition, a concert version of this theme without the lyrics on the CD, which is called In the Moonlight. And it's one of my favorite Williams' cues. Now, when I listen to that, I feel like I'm back in John Williams' 1960s catalog. That music could have fit in the movies Penelope or A Guide for the Married Man or even Fitzwillie, which we talked about earlier, being uh, an inspiration for Moonlight. Yes. It does begin to make its appearance in the score when Linus tries to keep Sabrina away from David to make sure David follows through with his engagement. Now, it's during this time that Linus starts to fall for Sabrina, and since that is the main love story of the film, it's only right that the main love theme is used for it. My favorite performance of it comes when Linus and Sabrina are at a Moroccan restaurant, and as the shots bounce back and forth between the two, we don't hear what they say, just this wonderful guitar performance.
Well, I agree that the music is wonderful. It's a beautiful rendition. But personally, I hate, I hate when, uh, uh, you know, the kind of montage sequences when filmmakers don't know how to make two people fall in love through dialogue. And so they just crossfade over pictures of them talking and smiling. Uh, interestingly, John Williams uh, makes a similar choice in instrumentation here as he will do later on in his career for Munich. You have a similar sequence in Munich where people are bonding. You cannot hear what they are saying. They are sitting at a table and eating together and you hear uh, the main theme played on a guitar. which To me, is a very humane, it's a very authentic sounding instrument. So it's like the theme is very being very earnest. Now, um, there is a main theme for this uh, film uh, that provides another example of great melodic construction. And I think that is the theme for Sabrina herself, you know, the ugly duckling who becomes a swan and enchants the two Larrabees. It's an elegant romantic theme in triple time uh, that is the first theme heard in the film as Sabrina introduces us in voiceover to the Larrabee estate. Now, that's John Williams performing on the piano. I always suspected it, even before finding confirmation that it was him playing. And that was based on the fact that John Williams also plays that piano at the end of Schindler's List. And uh, there is, to me, a very distinct uh, technique and uh, flavor to Williams playing. And uh, I was able to spot it when I first heard the CD. I said, well, that sounds like the same performer. Uh, John Williams is also a very, very good piano performer. People tend to forget that, but he was actually trained almost to be a concert pianist before he switched to composing. Now, I think that most of the romanticism of this theme comes from the arpeggiato style of music. I mean, because the chords uh, beneath the melody are not played, you know, like a triad. It's not the three notes played together, but it's always a tararira, tararira, tararira. Well, the notes that forms the harmonic uh, accompaniment are always spelled 
um, separately, and that's called an arpeggio. The theme, itself, uh, the theme itself has a very long line melody. I believe this is a feature of Williams' style that became more prominent in this period. If you think of uh, Anakin's theme from The Phantom Menace uh, a few years later, it's also a very long line melody. And the theme also has a dark, I think, almost foreboding central part. Now, in an interview at the Legacy of John Williams podcast, a composer and conductor David Newman also commented about this thing in this particular theme. Because in a sense, this movie is about a romance between a young woman and an older man, so we might assume that it will end too soon. And also the same undercurrent uh, in this theme is expressed in a kind of ostinato figure that opens the theme. The tararira tira tara tira tira. It's not very resolved. There is always a tinge of uh, melancholy. I don't know what you think about it, Jeff. Well, I had never put much thought into the age difference of Linus and Sabrina until now. But I guess Williams was subtly telling us that he didn't think this romance would last. And I guess when you're walking out of the theater, that maybe is in the back of your mind. But uh, yeah, I guess he's putting that into music. And probably even the song Moonlight kind of talks about, you know, the moonlight isn't uh, permanent. It it can go away too. It doesn't last. So yeah, gosh, he, he's a, he and the Bergmans were genius at creating this song. I always wondered what really the theme of the song was, but I think it's, it's pretty, but it also has that tinge of, yeah, something that doesn't last. It's not permanent. Very interesting. I agree with you. Uh, it's kind of interesting because as I said, to a degree, the song has a similar structure or even similar notes to the song from uh, Fitzwillie, Make Me Rainbows. Uh, but this song is very different in character, it's arranged very differently. And also, if you analyze the text, it's about quiet whispers, it's about thing that, uh, things that are done discreetly. So there is a completely different feel and atm atmosphere. And uh, yeah, it's, it's very, very interesting to notice how uh, John Williams wanted to uh, give a particular uh, um, night atmosphere. It's, it's, it, there's full of romanticism, but it's not like uplifting, optimistic, yay, let's go party. It's more, uh, it's more sophisticated, more mature. I think it's, this is clearly a love story between two adult people not between two boys or a young boy and a young girl. So let's go from this beautiful yet foreboding theme for Sabrina to the more upbeat music for the Larrabee family. Now, until I had watched the film again for this podcast, I had forgotten about this comedic composition, and I really enjoyed hearing it. And I really like the comedic compositions that John Williams does. So it's interesting that after watching this film, this would have been my third time watching it. It never stuck in my head. This theme, which I described in my notes as the Larrabee Work March, first plays when Linus and his mother ride into New York City discussing business deals, and later on for any work-related scenes. None of the music from those scenes appears on the soundtrack. The only track on the commercial release that features this theme is called The Nantucket Visit, and most of it is arranged with music not heard in the film. Part of what we do hear on the CD and in the film plays during the track's title, when Linus takes Sabrina to the Larrabee Cottage in Martha's Vineyard. I think it plays here because the trip to the Larrabee Cottage is all business for Linus, though Sabrina manages to strip that away a little bit from David Tart exterior as the day progresses. 
you'll hear a little bit of the Moonlight theme in here as well. I really like the harpsichord with the horns and the woodwinds providing a pulse throughout. I love uh, the harpsichord here as well, Jeff. Um, as an instrument, I always considered uh, the harpsichord to be a little bit antiquated, but uh, John Williams seems very fond of it. And it dusts it off and give it some business to do whenever he has uh, the chance. Um, a fourth theme in Williams' uh, score is based on the melody for How Can I Remember, the song that you um, uh, said earlier. Uh, it is clear that it portrays uh, Sabrina's unrequited love for David. You know, when played instrumentally in the underscore, however, this theme also features an interesting ostinato figure, uh, like Sabrina's theme. Uh, and here's the theme played during Sabrina's time in Paris after she learns that David is engaged.
I think the ostinato figure in the How Can I Remember theme connects it to Sabrina's theme in the same way Williams used it melodically to connect Leia's theme to her new love theme in The Empire Strikes Back. So he kind of went back to one of his more popular scores to kind of find a new way to construct this theme. And of course, the song itself is tied to David in Sabrina's love for him since that song plays whenever David takes a new girlfriend to the greenhouse to woo her. So I think it's time to talk about the finale when Linus plans to whisk Sabrina off to Paris, again, to keep David from deviating from the plan to marry the daughter of a business tycoon who will merge with Linus's company. The one thing I have to mention about the scene in which Linus tells Sabrina about the plan to take her to Paris is that there is absolutely no music in it. And this is most definitely by choice on the part of John Williams, perhaps to further illustrate that Linus is deceiving Sabrina, and at least for now, there is no sense of love in this discussion. We don't even get to hear Sabrina's theme as she gets swept up in Linus's proposal. After Sabrina discovers the ruse and decides to go to Paris alone, Williams gives us the How Can I Remember theme as Sabrina prepares to leave. But I think this is also Williams's way of saying this is the best music that I could use for this emotional moment. So Linus decides to let David off the hook and join Sabrina in Paris. But David has other plans. He decides to go through with the marriage and in turn 
plans for Linus to be with Sabrina in Paris. Yeah, I'm of the opinion that the music, I don't know what you think about it, Jeff, but I think the music should have started right when Linus turns and leaves the room and that the movie should have come directly to him in the car. But in order to have David's little resolution, you know, he's become a good businessman now, that cannot happen. So the cue accompanying Linus flying to Paris is sublime, you know, it has romanticism, it has urgency, it has momentum, and it has wonderful material for strings. So before working on this podcast, the music for this part of the movie was the only part of the score that really stuck with me if my thoughts ever turned to this film. I always remembered the sight of Harrison Ford running and the music helping him and the Concorde airplane take flight. John Williams has given us that big orchestral release before in recent years, especially in The Accidental Tourist, and always, to name just a couple of them. So the film ends with Linus and Sabrina kissing on a bridge overlooking the Seine with the Eiffel Tower in the background. We get Sabrina's theme tinkling away on the piano, and it's a great choice to not play the Moonlight Love theme here, especially since it's going to be followed by Sting's performance of the song all the way through the end credits.
And I will note that the music on the soundtrack doesn't feature the same lush orchestration in the final 20 seconds, but it's still a wonderful way to close out the film with Williams not going too sugary on the music. After all, as we said, maybe there's a sense that this love affair is not going to last. So that Moonlight song that Sting performs in the end credits was released as a single, and it even came with a music video that played on MTV. Sting is singing the song while playing the bass, which he also did on the official song recording, while two women perform on the piano and drums, a man plays guitar, and young girls play violins. Very interesting casting choices there. And the video doesn't play the full five minutes of the song, only a little less than three minutes, but it's amazing that a song like that got some play on MTV. Moonlight received a nomination in the original song category at the Academy Awards. That marked John Williams' fifth original song nomination and the 15th nomination in that category for Alan and Marilyn Bergman. It would be the final Oscar nominations for original song for all three of them, and incidentally the final Oscar nomination overall for the Bergmans, though they would continue to write songs for movies and TV shows for a few more years after Sabrina. As for John Williams, he did write a few more original songs for the movies, but they never got the same kind of pedigree or an exposure or popularity as Moonlight. I find it very odd that at the Academy Awards, Sting didn't bother to perform the song. Gloria Stefan, who is a very popular singer, did a fine job, but it wasn't the same. I would have picked Michael Dees, but he wouldn't have been a big name and people might have turned the show off, which is what producers do not want. Anyway, Moonlight did not take home the Oscar, losing to the song Colors of the Wind, from the Disney film Pocahontas. Sabrina's score did get a nomination that year as the Academy decided to make some changes to its original score category. Instead of just having one category for every kind of score, and to help alleviate the concerns that Alan Minkins wins for his Disney scores were largely helped by the songs, the Academy separated music into a drama score category and a musical comedy category. Of course, that didn't help John Williams in this case because his score for Sabrina was put into the musical comedy score category, and rightfully so. Minkin's score to Pocahontas took the Oscar that year for that category, as many expected it to do. Sidney Pollack directed a few more films before his death in 2008, and I think even if Pollack wanted to reunite with Williams, I don't think his films that he did after Sabrina would have appealed to John Williams even though one of them was another Harrison Ford vehicle. Sabrina bombed at the box office, presumably because many in its target demographic loved the original film so much they didn't bother to see if the remake held up. And I think this sort of ended Julia Armand's brief time in the spotlight after being the toast of the town with Legends of the Fall in 1994 and then Sabrina. She won the Female Star of Tomorrow in 1995 at the Show West Convention, thanks to Sabrina and her work opposite Sean Connery in First Night. But everything after that had Ormond in small supporting roles, not even in a title role. She did win an Emmy for the TV movie Temple Grandin in 2010, and I really liked her performance there. And she also did have a good run on the TV show Mad Men as the, second, as the mother of the second wife of Don Draper. So, John Maria, you talked about Greg Kinnear doing so well after this breakout performance, getting an Oscar nomination for As Good As It Gets two years later, but he also hasn't had the type of longevity in Hollywood that even Harrison Ford managed to keep after this with Air Force One, the 
sequel for Indiana Jones and the Star Wars sequels and even having a brief appearance in the Blade Runner sequel. So uh, let's wrap up this discussion of Sabrina. Is there anything else you want to discuss about this movie or the score? Well, not much about a movie. Well, I could go maybe a little bit into details about comparing the two versions, the 1954 and the formality uh, with, that you can spot in the direction, the blocking, the dialogue, which is a lot, you know, old-fashioned, very formal, but also really, really interesting and, and lively. Whereas uh, the new version, even though they bothered to go to Paris to film the scene in Paris, they wanted to give it a little more real edge. It comes across as very, very dull. And some of the choices that the director made to me are really baffling. Why take this kind of fairy tale story and then having the characters acting in a kind of subdued way? I don't really quite understand what the movie was trying to be. However, it allowed us to receive another great score from John Williams. I think he is also very fond of the theme from Sabrina. He performed it quite a bit in concert. Uh, so again, John Williams doesn't need a great movie, just need a, a great, a interesting enough uh, starting point to create one of his uh, wonderful melodies. And even if everything that the movie and the score uh, leave us uh, for future generation are a song and uh, a good main theme, I mean, to me, it's really, really, really good. Uh, I really like the, 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 the music and uh, I also sometimes uh, try to use it, you know, to charm uh, uh, girls and stuff like that because I think that the Moonlight song is, is really good in that sense. Uh, but I won't tell if it's worked or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, it doesn't, as we talked about, it doesn't have a, a good um, undertone to it. So yeah. maybe the girls are understanding that maybe that's not as romantic as you may get out to be. Yeah. <laughs> So I actually forgot to say that um, in preparation for this episode, I really went back and forth about wanting to watch the original 1954 film because I wanted to see if I could make a comparison between the score there and the score that John Williams did. And I really didn't do it. And I also wonder if John Williams was told not to listen to the score or watch the film of Sabrina. Um in the same way that I believe Harrison Ford said that he never even watched it, so he didn't try to mimic Humphrey Bogart. So I think everybody was trying not to mimic the 1954 film, and I think John Williams, yeah. for better or for worse, he really didn't mimic it. It's well, it, no, it's it, not trying to be romantic, as I think the original score was trying to be in 1954. Yeah, now, I agree with you, but there are there are one thing that I don't understand then, because the structure of the screenplay and the sequence of events really closes, uh, follow really closely the original. So why try to be different and so similar at the same time? That's kind of the thing about remakes. How do you keep with the original, but try to do something different? And I think that's Kind of the thing that can really damage a lot of remakes is how is how much they stay with the original because it sounds familiar. You don't want to go to a movie, pay $10 to see something you've already seen. You want to maybe see something a little bit different. And um, the things that they did differently in this film, unfortunately, just didn't work out with, with the moviegoers. But like we said, the score is really one of those timeless things. And, and even the purest John Williams fans who goes for like the big ones like Star Wars and Indiana Jones, all that, I think they have an appreciation for this because it really is a beautiful composition. So 
almost immediately after he wrapped up work on Sabrina, John Williams went back to work and he went into Oliver Stone's rabbit hole again for the biography of Richard Nixon. Now, this would be the third and final Oliver Stone film for John Williams, and it would bring him back to the drama surrounding the Kennedy assassination and the Vietnam War, but through the eyes of President Richard Nixon. And I'm looking forward to discussing that score on the next episode. It's going to be great. John Maria, it has been an absolute joy and pleasure to have you on the show again. Third time's a charm. It's been really fun. You've been a great contributor and I know you've provided a lot of insights that have helped educate me and the rest of our listeners. So thank you so very much. Oh, you are thanked as well, Jeff, for uh, letting me have fun on your show. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure for me as well. And, you know, uh, I'm happy to uh, spread the word uh, of John Williams to his fans and also to people who may not yet be John Williams's fan. I think that you're doing a great job and I'm really, really glad that I could contribute just a little bit. Uh, you're doing a great job and I'm looking forward for the next episodes also on Nixon and the great scores that will follow because, as I said, maybe his best known work is already done by 1995, but there are still some... Uh, uh, some interesting scores uh, in the years to come. And uh, if you talk about Star Wars, there are still six Star Wars movies <laughs> on your list that you have yet to cover. So I know. Thank you, <laughs> thank you, Jeff, once again. And uh, greetings, no, not greetings, but uh, uh, goodbye to all the listeners. And uh, we will keep in touch. And uh, good luck with everything. And uh, bye. Bye, John Maria. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody else, for joining us today. Until next time, the baton is down.